river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod Neurosis. Welcome to the TriQuest Podcast. The second episode of Making Bow Hunting Better. What's going on, Bob? Not much, man. We got uh, Mr. DJ Zor, or uh, what is it? AKA S. Clemens. Yeah. He doesn't use his real name on Instagram, guy. So we uh, we met DJ at Compton's this year. He came back to Michigan, and we hung out a bunch. Absolute stud. So, uh, and he's also the, uh, works with BHA and Trout Unlimited. He's super passionate about conservation. So we thought, let's get him on here. So welcome to the second episode of Making Bow Hunting Better, DJ. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I'm, uh, honored to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Um, so I, uh, from the Midwest originally. So grew up. My my hunting growing up was in the uh, in the farmlands of Wisconsin for whitetail and a little bit of quail growing up as a kid, and then uh, found myself in the Navy. And after the Navy, always wanted to live out west. So uh, now I'm here in the hot hot desert of Arizona. And uh, man, I've just since since getting out of the Navy, man, I've just been driven to get outside. Uh, hunt and fish a lot more and uh, in the last couple of years picked up the stick bow very cool um so did you end up driving out to michigan or did you fly out there like we did so i flew so my wife drove the majority of the way while i finished up my last couple of night shifts at work and then i flew to st louis to meet her uh both of our families are still in st louis so uh so I flew out there and then I drove up from St. Louis to Michigan and then to get back from Michigan back here to Arizona after Compton's we went to a family reunion in Wisconsin checked out the uh whitetail habitat out there got some new new ideas for stand locations for this fall and then drove across the upper Midwest through the Badlands through antelope country in Wyoming and then uh spent a couple days scouting for elk where I'm going to hunt over the counter in a few weeks here uh, and then drove the rest of the way back from Colorado South into Arizona. So yeah. big old family road trip. Heck yeah. <laughs> and you, you have a, a daughter. How old is she? Two years old? Yeah, she's two and a half. Nice. Um, How'd she do and, on the long uh, drive there? She was super good on the drive. We're working on potty training right now, so that was kind of interesting on the road. Um, but we just, uh, we just brought a little portable, like, uh, like a potty training potty for a kid, you know, that's like eight inches off the ground and just pulled over and told her to go for it. And it actually worked out really well. And then, uh, she, she had a blast in the Badlands and camping. Um, We've got one of those Osprey, you know, kid carrying packs. Um, so I took her with me on, on my scouting ventures in Southern Colorado there. Uh, so she was up over 11,000 feet 
leaping through the wilderness on my back <laughs> while I was huffing and puffing. Oh, that's awesome, man. I love yeah, it. Yeah, we got home, and she's trying to figure out where we're going to put the tent in the house. She thought that was going to be like the new normal. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. That's good times, good times. So Yeah, uh, yeah. So you've converted to the stick bow a little bit. Maybe we'll kind of hit that at the end, and uh, maybe you can tell our listeners kind of your – how you got involved with BHA and and what you're doing for them now. And I know, I think you, you're uh, helping out with some other organizations too. Maybe you could just kind of start there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So like I said, after the Navy, I got really interested in just spending a lot of time outside, realized that there were just these vast swaths of national forest and BLM lands out here in the West and in Alaska um, and just like had, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I'd never experienced that before. Um, and it was eye opening and life changing. And I decided after, uh, I, I did this paddle trip, uh, sea kayak trip in Alaska with a family friend who lives in Nome. And, uh, we spent six days paddling across the Seward Peninsula, like 80 miles and didn't see another soul besides each other, just the two of us out there. Um, and I decided that, I mean, that was, that was a, it was a big, big trip for me as far as like changing my perspective on things. And I just decided that I've got to do something to give back to that, uh, to make sure that it's around for, I mean, this was years and years ago before I had a kid, but to, to be around for when I do have kids, um, and for, for future generations. So I, I came back from that trip just like hungry for ways to get involved. I found Trout Unlimited. I, I do some fishing as well. So uh, hooked up with those guys, got involved with them, and through them kind of learned a little bit about this public lands fight that we're going through out here in the West, uh, and that led me to BHA. And so I'm there. Uh, I'm the Arizona chapter co-chair, uh, which is a, a volunteer position down here. Awesome, man. Yeah, BHA is a great organization. I I went to the rendezvous in was it Missoula with Andy a few years ago, and what a good time, man. Everybody you met was just awesome. It was so much fun. I meant to make it to the Boise one this year. Just too many, too many events too close together. So yeah, yeah, I haven't made it to a rendezvous yet, man. But it's it's high up on my list. I think Hal Herring said you can't. You can't flip a nickel up in the air at that event and not have it land on a verified badass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it felt just, like. Just so many, so many seriously passionate hunters, anglers, and, and outdoorsmen at that thing. I'm just, every time we have a big event and, you know, people just show up out of the blue or heard about BHA, I'm just blown away and like humbled by the people. You know, like I, I had a pretty big, elk hunt in 2016 and you know almost you know right on the border of a wilderness area pretty far back there humped this animal out just me and the help of a buddy feeling you know pretty pretty tough and and kind of macho after that and then i just talked to these people who were just like put me to shame yeah. you know just just guys that you know do the same thing but do it with a stick bow or you know have their own pack llamas and go in you know 15 miles into the bob marshall to do it or whatever just so many, so many interesting, dedicated folks uh, to to hunting and fishing. 
Heck yeah. So uh, as the co-chair for the Arizona chapter, um, you know, like what do you – what's – what does that mean? You, you guys, are you leading the conservations? Are you running the pint nights? I know BHA's had a big push lately. Membership is just going through the roof, which is awesome. I think solely because of this public lands fight we're in out west. And that's kind of why we wanted to get you on our Making Boating Better episode because, you know, for most of us that aren't rich and regular guys without our public lands that we have out here, we wouldn't be bow hunting much, I know. So, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. So what the, the co-chair is like the vice president. We have a, a chair and a co-chair instead okay. of a president and a vice president. And so Justin Nelson and I, he really shoulders the brunt of the work. And uh, and he and I just work together with uh, with the rest of our board to uh, to put on these pint nights to further, I mean, really membership is is screaming right now i think we're probably the fastest growing conservation organization and, and definitely the most energetic and boots on the ground oriented organization so where where i fit into that is is helping out with uh you know picking places and, and organizing pint nights going to these events and you know just being at the table and talking to folks who have questions about what we're doing and then with my with my further background already being involved in conservation in the state, I try to help out a little bit more with projects, uh, coordinating between other organizations that I've dealt with in the past, other NGOs, or maybe, you know, the, the Forest Service or uh, Game and Fish Department, whoever, um, just, just through my contacts that I already have established with those places. And then coordinate coordinating with the other NGOs, whether it be Trout Unlimited, I sit on their board as well, or, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for, for bringing volunteers up to uh, an elk exclosure project or something for, for a riparian area, something like that. Awesome. And then also, you know, the, the advocacy side of things is huge. Um, going to the Capitol, talking to state representatives about, you know, laws not only concerning public lands, but laws concerning water, habitat, wildlife, um, all, you know, a whole, a whole host of things on the state level. And then also I've been to DC to advocate on, on behalf of BHA as well. Nice. You're a busy guy, TJ. Yeah, I know, man. (laughs) You must have a very understanding (laughs) wife. (laughs) My wife, my wife reminds me constantly. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say it's a touchy, it's a touchy time of year right before hunting season. At least it is in my house. So Dude, it is, man. It yeah. is. I'm I'm counting it down. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get into the early season over the counter archery here for like three days. Is I think going to be my limit for hunting Arizona in the early season before heading to Colorado for two weeks. Yeah, awesome. And you're gonna you're, you're using the stick bow, huh? You're you're in. Yeah, man, I'm in. Um, I'm I'm dedicated to it. I haven't I haven't sold the wheels yet, but I haven't <laughs> I haven't picked that thing up. Besides to to move it around uh, and get it out of my way since January of 2017, I bought an old bear blackbird uh, bear black bear uh, recurve just on a whim. Well, kind of planned, man. I I've been thinking about 
picking up a traditional bow for a long time before that and found one for 125 bucks at a used outdoor goods store and man i haven't looked back yeah it's addicting that's for sure definitely addicting i know we talked a little before for we had you on here about uh you know kind of the importance of the uh american conservation model and you're gonna kind of help educate us i know james and i were just getting into all this and trying to help out so uh maybe we could talk about that a little bit before we get into the bow hunt yeah man so i've got kind of uh an outline put together to talk about history uh the present and, and current obstacles that we have and it kind of covers um you know where where we came from as a nation um through through some struggles and then the development of that North American model of wildlife conservation, um, and then kind of how things are a little bit different today and a little bit the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to jump into that. And if you guys, uh, if I'm going too fast or you have questions or, or I'm not clear on something, just uh, just interrupt me, and, uh, and we'll dive deeper into it. All right. Let's do it. Awesome. Um, okay, so like you said, Bob, the ability to hunt and fish and freely roam the mountains and prairies that we have here, uh, it's a its a totally uniquely American idea, and it's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. Well, one of the things that sets us apart from the rest of the world, uh, and in my opinion, makes us the greatest nation in the world. Um, I guess we got to give some credit to Canada, because they, they follow along with this model as well, so... We'll give mm-hmm. some props to our northern brothers up there. Um, so conservation, as defined by Merriam-Webster, is a careful preservation and protection of something, especially planned management of a natural resource to prevent exploitation, destruction, or neglect. Um, and then Merriam defines out water conservation and wildlife conservation. And that's, that's a pretty good definition. Um, the way I define it, Today, if, if you're going to ask me what conservation means to me, um, it's kind of a three-tier thing when we talk specifically about wildlife conservation, and that's one would be quality habitat and wildlife, access to that habitat being number two, and then three being preserving and educating, well, preserving the outdoor traditions and heritage that we have, and then educating both the next generation who's going to come up behind us and the rest of the public on what it is that we do and the positive impact that we have on that habitat, wildlife, and access. So for history, and and a lot of this, a lot of people, a lot of your listeners might already know all of this stuff. So just bear with me here, and you might pick up something that you haven't heard before. And if I say something out of context, um, give Bob and James some feedback, and they'll... They'll call me and yell at me on this. <laughs> so by the mid to late 1800s, market hunting in America was basically driving wildlife numbers down to extinction in some cases, uh, specifically like the, the passenger pigeon. So, so that market hunting in America was at that time unique to America because, uh, you know, the Europeans came over here and we were just abundant with natural resources and natural resources that we thought were like totally sustainable 
and were just endless. And it turned out to not be the case. And by the mid-1800s, people are starting to take notice of this. And by the late 1800s, people are starting to do something about it. So I'm going to call out some key players in our conservation history. George Bird Grinnell was, um, so just his history, he accompanied Custer on the Black Hills expedition. So it kind of gives you an idea of the time frame that he was out there. And he acquired a sporting journal called Forest and Stream in 1879. And that would later, in 1930, that would merge with Field and Stream, which is still being published today. Wow. But he looked at these declining wildlife populations and used Forest and Stream basically as a lever to to get that information about what was happening to these 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 animals out in front of the rest of the sporting public. And a dude who read the stuff that George Bird Grinnell wrote was a guy by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who we all know is an all-around badass and the 26th <laughs> president of the United States. The dude who's responsible for most of these large tracts of public lands that we enjoy out here in the West. And those two guys would found the, the Boone and Crockett Club in 1887. Another notable name is Aldo Leopold. Uh, he got his start in the Forest Service in the Arizona and New Mexico territories in 1909 and worked down here in the Southwest till 1924, managing uh, Carson and Apache National Forests. And then he went back to Wisconsin, became a professor at UW-Madison, and went on to write really the first book on wildlife management, which was, and this was in 1930, he wrote the book of American game policy. And he also wrote a, a book that I think everybody should read called A Sand County Almanac, which is kind of the, the reader-friendly version of Aldo Leopold's philosophies on wildlife and conservation. The American game policy book is a bit dry. A guy by the name of John Lacey, he was an Iowa congressman, and he would be the guy to come up with the Lacey Act, which is uh, the act that prevents the selling or uh, trading, or well, not trading, but the commercializing game meat. Um, so pretty much put a, a final end to market hunting in America. And a dude named Jay Norwood Darling, also known as Ding Darling, he was appointed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to run the Bureau of Biological Survey, which was the, the agency before we had the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And he's the guy behind the duck stamp. Um, okay. And the duck stamp, I think, was 1934. So that's it's kind of a history of the, the major players in conservation in North America um, at the the turn of the 20th century. It makes you wonder, so guys, it, to me, it makes me wonder if, you know, there's a couple guys that kind of did everything, you know, like if it wasn't for those guys, you know, like how could it have been different? You know, like it could have been way different. You, you know what I'm saying? Like looking absolutely. back at history and you're talking about these, these few key players that were, like you said, all around badasses that totally, it was not a popular thing back then to say we're going to put all this land aside. You know, I mean, we had the, they had the same pressures back then, or you know, 
minerals, you know, people wanting to sell the land, you know, blah, blah, blah. And for them to, to say, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this with it. We're going to, people are probably like, what the heck? I mean, I couldn't imagine not having Absolutely. that. And it definitely could have swung the other way pretty simply. But we, anyway, I'll quit interrupting. We, we probably wouldn't even <laughs> have elk and deer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It would, uh, without the habitat, yeah. it would just be. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Roosevelt's forest plan was widely unpopular by the folks with, with money interests in the West. Um, when, when he signed all of these national forests into, into being, and then it, it yeah, I mean, we're, we're really lucky and, and owe these guys a great deal of respect for, for the work that they did. So my, you know, like you said about not having deer in 1975 is when my grandpa told me he saw the first antler deer in Manitowoc County, which he was born in Manitowoc County in 1931. And he didn't see a buck until 1975 in, in Manitowoc County. Now, they would go up north to hunt where it wasn't all converted to farmland already. There was still forest up there. Um, but the, the wave of industry that swept across the nation um, combined with market hunting really drove those numbers to almost nothing. Um, the turkey is a really... Another great example of, of success. Um, so in the 70s, or the late 60s, early 70s, there was no Gould's turkey in Arizona. You guys familiar with Gould's, the subspecies of turkey? Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. They're, they're unique to um, Mexico, Arizona, and New Mexico. They're a Sonoran desert bird. They live in the Sky Island ranges, um, kind of similar habitat to Coos Whitetail. There were none of them in Arizona in in the late 60s or early 70s. And due to the work of the National Wild Turkey Federation and Arizona Game and Fish Department, and I'm sure some other people deserve credit for this too, I had an archery-only tag for a Gould's turkey this last spring. So, I mean, to, to hunt that bird on public land is an opportunity only afforded by the work of the folks that went before us. To, to lay down this foundation of conservation in this country. Um, so, yeah, we owe them a, a great deal to these folks. For sure. It's so easy to just buy the tag and and uh, drive up into the public lands and, and go hunting and not think, how did I get here? How did how did this all happen? You know? Um, yeah, we, we have this unique opportunity, and we, we have it for a reason, and it's, it's now it's your responsibility and my responsibility to carry on the work that these guys have done and, and even to, to further it um, and improve upon what they've done. Absolutely. So with, with that, let's get into what the North American model of wildlife conservation is. Um, and so just to be fair, so I have a 60-page paper in front of me from the Wildlife Society and the Boone and Crockett Club, which is their technical review of the North American model from December 2012. Just so everybody knows where where this information is flying from. So the the North American model is like seven seven principles. I think the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation refers to it as seven sisters of conservation. And so it's it's basically seven 
seven things that we do here in North America that ensure that we have these opportunities. Um, the first one being wildlife resources are a public trust. Uh, so what that means is unlike Europe um, or, or other countries where if you own the land, you own the game that's on the land or all of the game belongs to the king um, or, or anything that they're doing on the other side of the world here in North America, we hold wildlife in the public trust. Um, and this, this paper goes on to really get into the weeds on this stuff. I just want to hit one, one of their bullet points is that public trust is a public right. Trust property is owned by the public and held in trust for the benefit of the public. One does not have special status to make a claim, but only must be a member of the public. That means just, just being here as a member of the public in the United States, you have just as much stake in those animals as, as the rest of us do, um, which is, you know, like I said, totally uniquely American idea here. Um, two was that markets for game are eliminated. Um, and that was really the last nail in the coffin on that was the Lacey Act. Um, and that, that ended the unregulated trade of meat, hides, or other animal parts from from wildlife to the commercial market, which is one of the things that really drove our our numbers, um, especially waterfowl, bison, elk, deer, um, just you know drove them down into the ground. Mm-hmm. Something that has taken us you know seventy five or a hundred years to recover from. Let's see. Okay, so. Here's on, on the Lacey Act. Uh, club club member, so Boone and Crockett Club member, John Lacey of Iowa, first sponsored the Yellowstone Park Protection Act, which passed in 1894. And that protected the wildlife in the Yellowstone ecosystem from market hunters. And then later on in 1900, the Lacey Act effectively made market hunting illegal nationwide and remains the most powerful legal tour, most powerful legal tool to combat this activity. So once again, as as early as 1900 is when we're realizing that we need to, you know, take the reins on this thing and turn it around. And, you know, the three of us sitting here talking, we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. For sure. The third tenet or principle is that allocation to wildlife is by law, um, which makes pretty good sense, right? Everything is, regulated um, and we, we follow a set of legal rules and there is punishment for taking game outside of a season or taking an animal that is not game. Uh, four is that wildlife can only be killed for a legitimate purpose. So this goes on to ethics, I think, and this is where we get a lot of our wanton waste laws. Like in Alaska, I think it's, I think it's still the law that you have to pack the meat out before you pack out the trophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're really strict about that. Um, and that's, I mean, that's a, it's really respectful for the animal that you're taking to use as much of it as possible. But that's also good for the hunting community in general, because it gives us some legitimacy with the non hunting community that we're not just out to, you know, for, for some blood sport or something 
that we're we're getting something out of this and we're we're making a respectful use of what we take from the landscape. Five is that wildlife is considered an international resource. So this one is in here because we share a border with Canada and Mexico, um, and we need to partner with our neighbors so that they don't manage their wildlife, which migrates into our country in a way that negatively impacts us as uh, citizens of the United States, but also that we manage in a, in a way that fairly takes care of our neighbors as well. Um, and the big, the big hitter there would be the Migratory Bird Act. I think from 1916, or I'm sorry, it's a Migratory Bird Treaty. Something I learned in this bit of research I've been doing is that's not a act of Congress and it's not in the Constitution, but it's a treaty. And a treaty, in fact, supersedes what's in the Constitution because it's, it's a treaty between nations. Um, and somewhere I was reading an interesting case in, I think, Wyoming. It might be Montana. There's a case right now, a legal case, on uh, a First Nations guy killed an elk out of season, and he is using, as his legal defense, he's using a tribal treaty, I think, from 1860 that states that, um, and I'm, I, I don't remember all the specifics, but whatever whatever tribe he belongs to has hunting rights guaranteed by this treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this idea that treaties supersede all other law is still something that's in the legal system today. Yeah. Um, but that I mean that pretty much covers number five that it's it's an international resource. Um, so we respect our neighbors. Our our neighbors respect us. We have good relations with both Mexico and Canada when it comes to, uh, you know, kind of co-management stuff for species that are on both sides of the border. Migratory birds really being the big one. Six is that science is the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy, which is, in my opinion, really, really important. For sure. The Roosevelt Doctrine of Conservation. What's that? I said for sure. It seems like they, they don't... They don't get to use that a lot, at least in Oregon. Anyway, sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt. We'll talk about that so, right later. I'm writing it down. No, no, no. We, yeah, we, I want to. I want to get into that. I've got some more notes on that um, and some more information from this paper here. So the Roosevelt Doctrine of Conservation had three basic uh, or game management in three basic respects. It recognized that all outdoor resources as one integral whole. It recognized their conservation through wise use as public responsibility and their private ownership as public trust. And it recognized science as a tool for discharging that responsibility. And that, I mean, I think that is, is huge right now. And I think that's one of our biggest obstacles today that, you know, kind of makes our interest in conservation a little bit different today than things were at the turn of the century. It seems like maybe some issues were more black and white, cut and dry, and the answer was much easier to see mm-hmm. at the turn of the century. And I think we've got we've got some other interests at work today, and it makes things a little bit cloudy and a little bit more difficult to come up with an answer that appeases everybody, especially when 
either side of that argument doesn't want to agree with the sound science behind it. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, so in, um, in Leopold's book, that 1930 American game policy, uh, he called for the restoration of wildlife and a core of trained wildlife biologists that made decisions based on facts, professional experience, and an underlying set of principles for the emerging profession. And that's really where that, that Bureau of Biological Survey, or what's now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that's really where that came out of, is that, that game policy book from 1930. And he also emphasized in that book something that's really interesting to me is that the importance of maintaining habitat for wildlife. There's some folks who think that we can just, you know, in the case of the sage grouse, that we can just captive rear a whole bunch of birds and that'll fix our problem. But the, the reality of that situation and the science behind it says that captive rearing is not going to work and we need to save the habitat in order to save that species. Um, and that's, I think Leopold, he was just a dude who was, he was ahead of our time. Yeah. Um, he died in the late 1940s, but the stuff that he wrote down in the thirties and forties is just like, man, I read some of it today and it's just like light bulbs go off. Like, why didn't I think of that? You know? Yeah. So I think, I think really looking back on, on these forefathers of conservation, there's, there's so much, so much that they put down that we, you know, we benefit from today and, and every day going forward. For sure. Um, and then we got number seven, the democracy of hunting is standard. And that's what sets Canada and the U S apart from many other nations where the opportunity to hunt is restricted by those who have special status, such as land ownership, wealth, or other privileges. So that's, I mean, that's, that's it. That's what makes us the greatest country or one of the things that makes us the greatest country in the world is that, that we are set apart from everywhere else with the landowner or the social elite or, you know, the guys with more money than they know what to do with are the ones who have the ability to hunt and fish for us. I mean, you can go, you can go get $125 used bear recurve and, put on some jeans and a flannel shirt and, you know, get a $45 over the counter deer tag here in Arizona. And you're a hunter yeah. and you're, you have access to the same lands as everyone else in the same game as everyone else. That's a hunter in Arizona. There's nothing, there's no, there's no requirement besides a tag and a legal method. of it. And we're, we're so lucky to have that for sure. It, it um, does get a little foggy so though. <clears throat> I can see that getting a little foggy when they, when you talk about exploitation and, and start talking about governor's tags and landowner tags and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's an interesting discussion when it comes to the democracy of hunting is standard and some of the tag allocation systems that we have. Um, I know that BHA is is behind discussions in New Mexico right now, calling into question their allocation of landowner tags. I think it's 50% of the tags are landowner tags yeah. in New Mexico. Yeah. Um, wow. and that, that could be wrong. Um, it's a I, lot. Yeah, I don't I, know the I exact number. But, but it's a I lot. I probably shouldn't throw out 
figures, but there, there's a large number of tags designated for landowners um, that really take a lot of the public out of consideration, um, you know, for, for elk tags or antelope tags or, or, or otherwise. Um, and Texas is another place where things get a little bit gray and a little bit foggy when it comes to land ownership, high fences, um, and, and tag allocation. Things are a little bit different out there as well. And Utah's doing some um, different stuff also right now with their raffle tags and their auction tags through that sportsman for fish and wildlife and all that stuff they got going on too. So there's a, there's a few gray areas there going on right now. There, there definitely are. And I've, I've heard, I've heard some rumors about what's going on in Utah and where, where that allocation of, or that, that money gets allocated to from those auctions or raffle tags. So in, in Arizona, we do have for each species, we have a governor's tag and we have a raffle tag. So, so two tags for each species. And that is managed by a, a, an NGO or a non-government organization called Arizona Sportsmen for Wildlife Conservation. And what Arizona Sportsmen for Wildlife Conservation is, is a, it's a, member group where each of the members is an actual other organization. So Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is a member of Arizona Sportsmen for Wildlife Conservation. So is the Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. So is the Wild Sheep Foundation. So is National Wild Turkey Federation. So is Trout Unlimited. So what it is, is is all of these NGOs designate a member. In in our case, it's um, Justin, our state chair for Arizona, goes to these meetings and he sits down with all these other heads of all these other organizations. And we work together on large scale habitat and then also large scale fundraising for grant writing into the organizations that support Arizona sportsmen for wildlife conservation. And then the, the way the tag program works and the way they run that is that all of the money generated from the tags goes back to Arizona Game and Fish Department for the species that the tag was sold for. So the money from the governor's tag for desert bighorn sheep goes back to sheep habitat, sheep translocation, sheep studies, sheep collaring, sheep whatever. It goes back to sheep. Um, yeah, and that's, and that's huge. I mean, that's... <clears throat> Just for our listeners, if you don't follow that stuff, that's a several hundred thousand dollar tag in, in Arizona for desert bighorn sheep. So, I mean, I, I, I totally see their reasoning behind it, but where it gets super fuzzy is like in Utah when you have a ton of the, you know, like it, it, uh, it's definitely gets pointed to the exploitation, but then they're also, you know, they're able to use all that money to help more habitat, more projects for more animals. So anyway, it is a, it is a touchy one. So it's good that yeah, BHA at least, um, um, you know, there's organizations out there kind of looking into it and that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, it's, I mean, like you said, it's, it's a huge revenue generator for Arizona game and fish department. Um, and I, and I think it's, it's absolutely reasonable 
that we allocate, you know, two tags per species for the, the return on investment for those two tags is monumental here in Arizona. Um, but I, I also know firsthand that we're using those funds appropriately. Mm-hmm. Where where I would really call it into question is if those funds are getting used inappropriately, um, then I I would take major issue with that. Sure. Um, so I want to go back to um, science being the way that we set policy. Um, or science being the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy. So this this paper that I have in front of me is from I got to read it again. From, it's from the Wildlife Society. Um, so that's a nationwide. It's a professional society. Um, biologists, um, guys doing field studies, a lot of your state game um, field biologists and employees will be members of the Wildlife Society, um, but it, it's strictly a professional's organization. But that gives you a little bit of a background on the information I have in front of me um, and, and where it's coming from um, as far as, as who's, who's saying this stuff. So going back to that, that science piece, um, there's a note in here that says, animal rights organizations work tirelessly to shift the political debate to exclude hunters and hunting at national, state, and local levels. Without political, social, and financial support, uh, or without the political, social, and financial support of hunters and anglers, agencies will be severely challenged to be able to deliver effective conservation programs for all wildlife into the future. Um, So that's like we talk about with BC bears, right? Mm Mm-hmm not sound science going into management policies. Um, and this, this paper specifically calls out ballot initiatives, which I believe is yeah. how you guys <clears throat> yeah, lost that, that your ability to hunt big cats with dogs. Yep, for sure. And you guys came close this year, right? So there was, there was a push. There was a petition out for a ballot initiative. Um, and Humane Society of the United States backed off once they saw the amount of opposition they were getting to that petition. And they, it's doing something like that is a huge financial burden. It's a huge waste of money. Um, and so what, what we were successful in doing was basically just making them see that it was going to cost them way too much money to have a chance at that not going through. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's a really, really dangerous precedent. We lost our ability to trap on public lands in Arizona. There's no trapping on public lands. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's due to a ballot initiative. So this this talks about that being one. And just from personal experience, like I talked to guys from Arizona that, that don't even really know what just happened. I mean, you guys have no idea how lucky you are that that didn't just happen. You know, like our deer numbers have plummeted in this state. I mean, I've seen it, you know, in the last 20 years. It is, you guys got, you know, like, I think that's a benefit of like our time right now. We're able as hunters to, it's a benefit of social media, the internet, all that stuff. Like we're able to kind of get together a little quicker on things. Cause man, you guys really dodged a bullet. So anyway, proceed, proceed. 
Yeah, no, I, um, California is a really good example of, of what happens when that, when that cat hunting is outlawed entirely. You know, their, their incidents of, uh, human interactions and conflict with big cats in California has, has gone up drastically. And I think the number of, and don't quote me on this, but I think the number went fourfold increase for how many cats were having to get taken out by wildlife professionals due to human conflicts. Um, so that basically a cat is in an area, there is a cattle depredation problem or a livestock depredation problem, or they're in someone's backyard and they keep walking off with their, you know, their puppies and kittens and stuff. And uh, a wildlife professional basically has to come out um, and, and hunt that cat on the, on the professional level um, or, or kill that cat. I suppose one could question calling, calling that hunting or not. Um, And that, that incidence has gone up fourfold since that, that outlaw went into place. Um, and the other, the other place that has a significant problem is on funding. Um, without tag sales, that's, I mean, that's, that's the driver, um, or one of the drivers for funding in conservation today. Um, Mm -hmm. the, the game and fish departments that we have are not tax funded. Um, and I think that's important for, for everyone to realize is that there's no, there's no state money, um, with the exception, uh, Missouri has like a 0.5% sales tax that goes to the Missouri Department of Conservation. Hmm. And they're unique with maybe three or four other states that do have some state funding allocated to conservation. But that's, that's really rare huh. for the most part. The Game and Fish Department, or you guys have Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, is that yeah. right? Yes. Is is completely funded through a few excise taxes that I'm going to get into, and I've got some numbers for you guys here, um, and through license sales and private donations. And that's the only – so all your biologists, all your game wardens, all of the administrative folks, God bless him, who sit there and go through our applications and make sure that we get our tags uh, and, and deal with us on the phone when we can't find our tag and we need a new one. Um, all of these folks are funded by us, hunters and fishermen. Um, there's, no, there's no other money coming into them from the state level. Um, so that taken away... The, the tag sales from big cats is a significant, I mean, that could mean somebody's job, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, it also, there's, there's a further economic impact when you, when you look at guides and guys that, you know, folks from the East yeah. who travel to the West to, to hunt cats, right? Now you're, you're talking about someone's livelihood that you're going to yeah. take away. <clears throat> and um, it, that trickles down to, so you know, it, stores and gas stations over there and you know small towns and all that stuff that that you know get rely on those hunters for income you know? well if, if, if you think losing the cat hunters is bad wait till the deer get eaten by all the cats and, <laughs> and see how many deer hunters come to town yeah it's a that's what we got i mean i i dj i i went out for five days this year 
this spring shed hunting in an area I grew up hunting. I don't really hunt there anymore. Um, but, uh, area I grew up as a kid hunting and me and, you know, I, I had my daughter and a couple of good buddies of mine. We hiked around for five days and one of my buddies didn't have any kids with him and he put on the miles. I mean, he was shed hunting and you would like, if you saw a deer track and I'm not joking, this is a place I grew up and you drive around and see deer all over. The place. If you saw a deer track, it was a big deal. I saw like two deer in those five days and, and it was the same with my buddy and the same with our other buddy. Like if you saw a deer track over there, you're like, wow, there's a deer track around here. And that's happened in, in my lifetime, which is really sad. So how, how many sheds did you pick up, Bob? Uh, we just, found, we only found a few. Right. Elk sheds. So yeah, it's uh, it's sad. It yeah, and it, I mean that that just solidifies the point. You know, I'll just I'll just read the statement again that science is the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy. And that so so I think so. I'll play devil's advocate for just a second here. That that science to discharge wildlife policy has to be balanced so we can't at the same time that we say we need we need to have a a proactive way to manage predator species because i mean just because of our impact on the landscape agriculture cattle and the way that we have have changed the landscape a lot of places are really really favor the predator um and that's that's why you see some in some cases you see these these predator populations just explode. So at, at the same time, we have to manage the wildlife to have predators on the landscape because they're they're a part of the ecosystem and they're a part of the landscape as well. And this is this is where I think some hunters find themselves on or, or we we have hunters on the wrong side of this argument in some cases, as well as we have, you know, the, the animal rights activists on the wrong side of this argument in some cases. And I think in, in some instances there's room for, for each of us to give a little bit to get the best thing for wildlife and habitat. Um, but it, it, we just, we always have to fall back on science being the proper tool. Um, so, Yellowstone ecosystem and grizzly bear is a really good example. That's right. Like they, they've been delisted and the science proves that that's where we need to be. And the, the anti hunting groups and animal rights groups are lobbying lawsuits or, or filing lawsuits against the federal government that now our tax dollars on the federal level are tied up in the legal system because people are, are questioning the validity of delisting these critters when everybody knows that objective goals have been met mm-hmm. and it's, it's time to, it's time to let go and let the endangered species act work because not only are you tying up money in courts, but you're also tying up fish and wildlife and, and state game management resources that no longer need to be in this fight and they've got some other critter that they need to direct their resources to and look after. And I mean, that could be from the blackfoot ferret to the narrow headed garter snake to 
to brown bears. It, it doesn't just apply to game species, but in general, wild bear science is the proper tool to manage our wildlife. And that, that's top to bottom wildlife yeah. and top to bottom science being the thing we have to fall back on. For sure. That would be a much, much simpler world if we just, if that just happened, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. I mean, we're, we're going through wolf recovery down here in Arizona and the, the HSUS and Centers for Biological Diversity are questioning the, the tactics and the protocol that Arizona Game and Fish and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife are using for restoration where, I mean, this is, these, these are the scientists. These are the people who care more about wolf recovery and have more skin in the game, literally than anybody else on the planet. And the HSUS and, and Centers for Biological Diversity are questioning in their, their management practices and their restoration practices, which is just, it's just putting the brakes on the thing that they say they want to happen, which makes calls into question for me, do they really want it to happen or are they just lobbying for more legal money or, or, you know, looking for more money for their lawyers? Yeah. Anyways, enough on that tangent. <laughs> Speaking of money, let's mm-hmm. get into funding. You guys ready to segue into funding? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So where we get our money from, we already talked about, tags where that's that's the big or one of one of the big drivers and i don't have any any numbers on tag sales i should have got that but i didn't what i do have is some excise taxes um and some federal taxes that get divvied up and allocated to state agencies uh first one being the pittman robertson act um also known as the wildlife restoration act of 1937 that started out as an 11% excise tax on firearms. It has since expanded to firearms, ammunition, and archery equipment. Um, through the years, it's been amended a handful of times to include other things into that tax. In 2018, just just one, one year, fiscal year 2018, um, and these numbers are from a Dep- Department of Interior report where they, they basically they report how much money they got and then how they allocated those funds. So in just one year, $797 million went into the Pittman-Robertson Act. That's, wow. that's wow. huge. Like uh, every time I see that number, my mind is blown. Um, and then that money gets divvied up between the states and some of it goes to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So in Oregon and and the competition for that money is pretty fierce and it's, it's not just like, okay, your state is this big, you get this much money or your population is this, you get this much money, but the states actually have to apply for how much money that they're going to get. And they have to prove to the department of interior that they're using that money appropriately. Or in fact, that they have something they need that money for, before they get the money, kind of like a grant application process. Okay. I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs to it, but I do know that it's pretty competitive. And this is, I mean, this is where these salaries come from. Mm-hmm. So Oregon, 
just in 2018, and this was signed March 30th, 2018, you guys are allocated $17.6 million from this one federal excise tax. Wow. Arizona, just for comparison, I, I ran totals, Oregon, and Arizona numbers. We pulled $22 million out of that fund. Um, just, I mean, that's just a huge, yeah. huge pile of money. Um, awesome. and that's, and that's what it takes for sound science. And if, and if you read further into this paper that I've got from the, the wildlife society, you realize that like we, it's not enough for the studies that folks want to do and to really get the sound science and information because all, all of this science and genetics testing and native species recovery. I mean, this is, this is the stuff that we're on the cutting edge of today. It's not just saying, okay, there are three deer on the landscape. How do we bring this number back? But we're, we're, we're looking at native species restoration. We're looking at complex problems between agriculture and wildlife, uh, whether that be with big cats and large predators and depredation, or whether it be with domestic sheep transmitting pneumonia to wild sheep herds. Um, we're looking at complex changes in habitat where we're losing certain species of vegetation and how that's affecting wildlife as a whole. So, I mean, the, the science out there and the number of projects, it's just dizzying how much work is being done and then realizing that there's so much, I mean, we're only scratching the surface on the work of, of wildlife conservation. Um, so it's a huge number, but it, I mean, it, it's a huge, we're, I mean, we're looking at a huge project nationwide. Sure. Um, so the next one we'll talk about is the Dingle Johnson Act, uh, also known as the Federal Aid and Sport Fish Restoration Act of 1950. Really what, what, what was the name of that one again? That is the Dingle Johnson Act. Dingle Johnson. Got it. That's right. Um, so that was, um, I don't know if he, I think he was a senator, John Dingle, um, and his daughter-in-law is a congresswoman in Michigan today, Representative Debbie Dingle. Um, and I had the, the pleasure of sitting in on one of her talks during the Congressional Sportsman Fund breakfast last summer in July. Um, She's a Democrat and an ardent sportswoman. Um, so it was really interesting take on someone who's who's steeped in the history of conservation, um, especially from a place like Michigan. So that's been around since 1950, and that is similar to Pittman-Robertson, except for that tax is on fishing tackle, um, some stuff associated with fishing, and boat fuel. And um, that, in 2018, generated $352 million annually. Wow. Oregon saw $7.8 million of those dollars, and Arizona saw $7.1 million. Um, so that's another huge kicker into, um, into our state agencies. Um, we talked about Ding Darling and the federal duck stamp. I don't have any specific numbers that are, are really current, but um, in 2007, leading up to the 75th anniversary, they had raised over $700 million. Um, so you can, you can tack on a few more million on top of that to get us to 2018. 
Um, but we're, I mean, we're pushing a billion dollars there and that's just in the sale of federal duck stamps, which I think is $25 right now. You guys duck hunt? Yeah, I don't. I haven't been in a while, but no. I used to go a lot, <clears throat> but yeah, that's awesome. Hunters are pretty badass, man. Um, <laughs> what's yeah. that? I said hunters are just awesome. We kind of yeah. fund everything. Yeah, I mean, and this is... <laughs> This is really the, the economic driver for for wildlife preservation or conservation or what, whatever term you want to put on it. You know, there's all this argument between conservation and preservation, but the deal is like this is where the money's coming from, whether you're on one side or the other and you call it conservation or preservation. It's all it's all coming from us. We, we should get a. Um, they need a REI tax to try to help us out. So it's it's really interesting. I'm, I'm going to talk about business contributions in a minute. Um, but so I I saw a quote from Vista Outdoor Products, and they own they're like uh, they own like bee stinger uh, stabilizers, or I think Federal Ammunition is under Vista. Um, and some firearms manufacturing and stuff. So it, it's one big entity that owns a bunch of small manufacturers. And from, I mean, from camping gear all the way to firearms. Okay. Um, and they, REI dropped all of their products when there was some Second Amendment arguments going on. Uh-huh. Um, and REI just dropped everything. So they came out with a statement and they said last year, we gave $87 million to conservation through the Pitt and Robertson Act. Just, just through firearms and ammo sales, one, one large company that owns a bunch of small companies wow. ended up paying $87 million into this one tax. Um, and, you know, they may have some fishing stuff, so that, that might be Pittman Roberts and Dingle Johnson. Um, I'm not sure what, what all their companies are. Um, but so they, they came out with this press release, you know, that said, we're, we're proud of the work that we do. Um, and it was, it was, they didn't call out REI specifically. Um, but it was, it was basically a, you know, a retort to them being dropped by REI saying like, well, what, what do you guys do? You know, where's, where's your $87 million contribution? Um, (laughs) And we'll mm-hmm. we'll get into where where businesses can contribute in a minute. So in that Pittman Robertson Act was driven by firearms manufacturers. That was that was brought forward by hunters and by the manufacturers, saying that if we don't have money to restore these game populations, we don't have a reason to sell firearms. If we don't have a reason to sell firearms, we go out of business. It's in our best interest to, to contribute to this, and it's in your best interest as the hunter to support us in this and to, to shoulder some of the burden of this 11% tax so that you have something to hunt and I have a reason to sell you a firearm. Um, so it's, it's really, yeah, it, and it, it, it passed so fast there like this bill i don't know if it actually set any records but from the time it was drafted to the time it was passed 
and the amount of support that it had from both sides of the aisle would like, if you saw a bill like that in Congress today, your head would explode from confusion. Like there's no, there's no way this many people support this thing. And there's no way it happened this fast, you know, and everything like with, with riders and stuff today, we just, we just had some, a small victory in the sage grouse restoration where the, are you guys familiar with the sage grouse restoration plan? A little bit. Or the sage, sage grouse initiative is, it's where a bunch of folks came together from the sportsman community, agriculture, uh, oil and gas industry, and they looked at what's happening with the sage grouse and kind of what everybody's impacts are on it and what the implications would be if it were to get ESA listing. Um, and it's in, it's in everyone's best interest. I, I'm a firm supporter of the Endangered Species Act, but I would say it's better if we keep species off of the list, then drive them to the point where we have to list them because it's much less expensive and and costs much less resources to take care of something that's existing than to do the restoration work after we've nearly destroyed it. Um, And that's, that's kind of one of the, one of the theories behind the sage grouse initiative. Um, It was like a decade of talks. Everybody made some compromises, um, and that's from wildlife management perspective, from the oil and gas perspective, from the ag perspective. Um, everybody came to the table, had some tough discussions, came to some compromises, and decided how we're going to go forward with basically taking care of sage grouse, which takes care of antelope, which takes care of mule deer, which takes care of some waterfowl populations. I mean, the sage grouse habitat supports a, a huge amount of other species. Um, and there was a, there was a rider on the recent defense bill up until it went to a vote. It got, this rider got pulled right before things went to vote because they realized it was going to cause major problems once it got to the floor, but they were going to basically dissolve these 10 years of talks and do nothing. Um, and just, you know, just kind of keep, keep on keeping on driving sage grouse into the ground. And it was a rider on the defense bill, which is something as a nation we have to pass. But this piece of conservation legislature doesn't belong there at all. And that, that's where things get really complicated in mm-hmm. Washington with, with stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and I know with the, with the sage-grouse, like you had alluded to, I mean, that their habitat mirrors all the big game species. And so if they don't have a healthy habitat, then we can kiss our desert mule deer goodbye and antelope and so on and so forth. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's why, and, and you know, that goes back to that science piece again and what, what Leopold said in 1930, that taking care of the habitat to take care of the wildlife is really where we need to be focused, not just taking care of species numbers, but taking care of the places they live so that their numbers do their thing on their own. Yeah, um, I know some of the challenges that we face in that department in southeast Oregon is these big fires have taken out the sage and the cheat grasses. Uh, the invasive species have uh, come in and are competing, and I think that's uh, you know just a, a battle that is hard to to beat. Yeah, absolutely, and and so fire fire is a huge 
huge thing right now. I don't have anything prepared to talk about fire, but in so in Arizona, we've suffered some huge, huge fires in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, the wall of fire uh, that ripped through my favorite elk unit being, the I think, one of the largest fires in recorded history. It's like 500 million acres or something like that. Wow. So by 50 million acres. 50 million acres. Um, it was huge. It, it burned from the White Mountain Reservation all the way into the Gila in New Mexico across Apache Sickers National Forest. Um, and so we, here in Arizona, um, folks took a look at these major fires and, um, and, you know, decided that we can't just the, the budget to deal with these fires in, in real time and post fire restoration stuff is just ridiculous that we need to start managing for these fires before they happen. Um, and that putting out every fire and eliminating timber cutting wholesale is, is not the answer that that's, that's driving these fuel loads um, to be a place where, you know, things are just a tinderbox and, and the fire ecology is just unsound. Mm-hmm. So we started doing this thing called the four forest restoration initiative or four fry for short. And that's uh, Apache sick Greaves, Coconino, Tonto and Kaibab national forests. And it's once again, it's a group of a bunch of folks from different interests from um, water rights holders, the salt river project. Um, and that's, that's who I pay my water bill to, um, to, forest industry to agriculture to uh to hunting and fishing and game and fish department u.s fish and wildlife service and u.s forest service and and some other interests as well um sitting down and talking about major forest management changes and how how we're going to fix our fire ecology through selective cutting um and how we are going to improve the habitat that's been ruined um, and how, how to leverage dollars in the right ways to restore this habitat as fast as possible. Um, and once again, you know, we talk about numbers. Um, I mean, we're talking millions and millions of dollars in restoration from these mega fires that we're having. And I, I, I just looked at a map and I was looking at where your fires are creeping creeping up into southeast Oregon or southwest Oregon there. Yeah, and they've had some – there's been some big ones in northern Nevada this year too. I think one of them was 480,000 acres, and, you know, we're talking sage-grouse sage country, you know. Other one – I got a unit in the yeah. area I'm about to hunt that's 120-some thousand acres. And, and like I said, that everybody, when they think of a forest fire, they think, oh, that's great, but when they burn that – that rangeland, that sagebrush, and that cheatgrass comes back. You know, the only thing, only thing that eats that, I think, yeah, is chuckers. When you've got invasive, yeah, when you've got invasive species that can come back just so much faster than the native growth, um, it it becomes really, really complex in that restoration, in that post-fire care. Um, Arizona, Southern Arizona actually used to be like a savanna grassland, um, almost like the savannas in Africa. Mm-hmm. And after, after the Spaniards came through and a bunch of cattle got released, 
a bunch of grass got eaten just down to the nubs and a fire came through and we saw a habitat change that is the the southern Arizona that I see and hunt in today is different wholesale than the southern Arizona from the mid-1600s. It, it's an entirely different landscape. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at with these major fires. And when, when we, when we have a stake in the management of these fires and the fuel loads being out of control and, you know, humans are responsible for that cheatgrass being on the landscape, um, it, it becomes a really hard pill to swallow to not do something about it. Um, Okay, so we'll talk about one more funding piece, um, and I'm just bringing this up because it's up for vote on September 30th, and that's the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, that came out in 1965, and that taxes earnings from offshore oil and gas resources. And in the last uh, 52 years, that's generated $38 billion total. And that doesn't just go to wildlife management, um, but that goes to public easements, city parks, county parks. That goes to a, a wide variety of projects that pretty much every American enjoys, and a lot of them support habitat or, or lands to hunt or fish on, um, and that is up for vote on September 30th to renew that. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's an act out there, I think it was introduced by Raul Grijalva from Arizona to basically permanently authorize that fund, which we haven't been able to do yet. Um, but that's something that, that costs the American people effectively nothing. Um, that's just a, a tax on the, you know, the large-scale oil and gas industries, that are, and it's only offshore drilling where that comes from. Um, so that's, that's something that if you're a BHA member or a Teddy Roosevelt conservation partnership or, or some other, uh, NGO member, you may get an email or a letter or, or, uh, a Facebook message requesting you to contact your representation in Washington to have them support permanent authorization of the land and water conservation fund. Um, which is something that I, I definitely recommend, talking to your elected official and telling them that that is important to you. Um, okay. So that's it. That's it for funding. Now let's talk. I, we, we kind of brushed on some of this stuff, um, but we'll talk about conservation today and how it's different. So we, so I, I already mentioned, you know, kind of my definition of conservation being like a, a three-legged stool or one leg is quality habitat and wildlife Another leg is access to that quality habitat and wildlife. And then the third leg is preserving our traditions and heritage. And that's, I mean, that's what you guys are doing with, with the podcast, I think, is, you know, you're, you're getting these guys on here telling their stories. And it's, it's something that, I mean, it lights the fire in me. But it's also something where, like, I almost wish I had a pen and paper and I want to write down some of these tactics and not make some of these mistakes that, you know, that these guys have made in the past. And, and, you know, 
learn from our wise elders. Um, so so I, I, mean, I think what you guys do on this podcast, that meets my definition of work in the realm of conservation. Um, supporting NGOs or non-government organizations, and that'd be like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, you guys have a traditional archery club in Oregon, right? Yeah. Traditional Archers of Oregon, is that right? Yeah. Compton, um, traditional yeah, bow hunters. Yeah. Compton is absolutely, I'm going to talk about Compton specifically here in a minute. Um, but, I mean, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, Trout Unlimited, I, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So if you're, if you're an elk hunter, man, support the guys that are doing work in elk habitat. Mm-hmm. If you are, you're a duck hunter and you happen to listen to this podcast, man, call up Delta Waterfowl and see what those guys are doing in your neck of the woods because man, the stuff that goes on in riparian habitats, especially to us, big game hunters is critical, especially in these drought years that we're having. If it, if there's not healthy riparian areas for big game to, to drop down off of the mountain or, or come off of some dry high plain into, you know, into a side Canyon that's got a healthy spring in it. Um, yeah man, we're, this is, you know, it's another example of, of habitat for one species really overlapping into many. Um, so, so whatever your passion is, um, find an organization, um, and put your money where your mouth is and be an active part of conservation today by supporting the folks that support your interests and the, the things that you love to do outside. And it, I mean, it, you, you might be a hardcore whitewater rafter and your, your other interest is in access to rivers. Um, and you know, the American river society is something that you're into. It doesn't have to just be a hunting or fishing organization. Um, we, you know, it, for the most part, we all help each other out. Access is good for everybody. Um, you know, riparian areas are good for everybody. Sagebrush habitat is good for everything that lives on there. So, mm-hmm. so rough, rough grouse society. If you're, you know, if you're interested in in bird hunting, um, there's there's plenty of folks out there to support. Um, so I just encourage everybody that's listening to to pick one and get involved. Um, talk about supporting businesses that support conservation. Um, we have so many choices today um and obviously anybody that sells a bow or sells a firearm is supporting conservation through that pittman robertson act but i i would say it's really important to vote with your dollars when it comes to conservation and if you have the choice between a company that takes an active role in conservation either boots on the ground or advocacy um or a company that is just out to make a buck and doesn't, you know, doesn't make a public stance on issues. I would side with the company and give the company that's, that's taken an active role in conservation, your money. Um, so there's, there's a group out there called 2% for conservation and they are specifically interested in, uh, hunting and fishing companies that support conservation and that 2% you know, we talked about this 11% excise tax. If, if REI would give into this 2% in, 
it would it would generate in in the realm of millions of dollars. So this two percent for conservation is one percent of a business's money and one percent of their employees and their time doing actual work. Um, so it's a, it's a really unique thing. It's uh, fishandwildlife.org is the website for these guys. And I just, because I have this platform here, I just want to, I just want to praise the companies who are a part of this. So the founding partners are Sitka, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and the Wild Sheep Foundation. And the business members, so these are members that give part of their time and part of their money back into conservation. Um, and I don't know what, how they're listed, so I'm just going to read them off the website list. This is no particular order. First Light, Mountain Ops, uh, Hush, Hunt and Fish, Huntera, which is a map program, Pint Pass, there's some, there's some brewers on here, which is pretty cool, Stone Glacier, Hunt Reminder, Seek Outside, uh, they make packs, teepees, other backcountry stuff, GoHunt.com, Seacat, uh, 406 Brewing Company, RER Bows, and Stone Point um, Outfitters. So their RER Bows and Stone Point Outfitters are the same dudes. However, they're they're giving from both companies, so both of those names are on here. Um, <clears throat> First Light Printing and Graphics, JDL Engineering, uh, Dark Mountain which I'm not familiar with. That might be a coffee company. I'm not sure, though. And Sportsman's Nation. So uh-huh. these, those are companies where, you know, if you have the option, support these guys because they support your interests. Heck, yeah. Very um, cool. And, and I encourage anybody on here or any, any of your listeners who are boyers or have a business that is impacted by conservation, if you make your living off of wildlife, whether it be being an outfitter or a boyer, or you make the best, uh, you know, wood arrow shafting, or you make the best custom arrows, Carson and Andy, um, <laughs> I recommend that you look into yeah, get on there. for conservation. Um, we'd sign, we'd sign really up for great. it, but they'd actually owe us money since we're in the hole about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think your business has to be in the black. Okay, well, you're not it. allowed to actually be a drain on conservation. You have to have a business. Uh, okay, Bob. Right. Well, we'll get on Andy Carson. Get on our boys. Yeah, that's a great. They, they came out uh, a few years ago. I think that was when I went to that BHA. Uh, I think Gritty Bowman did a podcast with. Uh, wasn't it? Uh, Blake Fisher or somebody started it. I don't remember who started it, but they were over there. And uh, I can't uh, remember his name. I listened to that same podcast years yeah, ago, and yeah, I've been yeah. I've been interested in it ever since. Um, and it's it's a really cool thing to do, right? For for one percent of your dollars and one percent of your time, you basically you get free advertising through these guys, and and it's just. You're putting your money where your mouth is, and that you're you're proving to your customer that you have a vested interest in what they're passionate about. Yeah. Um, so, and and if you if you don't join two percent for conservation, um, and and you are a business, um, or you know you're a guide or whatever it is, I recommend that you take an active role, um, in 
in conservation um, and, and be a positive impact for our community because politicians listen to businesses. When it, when it comes to money, politicians are always, always listening. Um, so your, your advocacy is almost more important than a guy like me who's just Joe Schmo that works at a power plant going to Washington and talking to my representation. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised that, that, that that's all the companies too, that, that are on there. This, you know, it's been a few years. I thought they'd have a lot longer lists. So yeah, any businesses out there. So I, I emailed them ahead of this Mm -hmm. and that list is not entirely up to date. So caveat, if you are a business and you are a 2% supporter, that list is not entirely up to date and they are working on making that more up to date. Okay. Um, that's, that's just the information that I have available to me right now. So don't, don't get mad at, at me or get mad at the guys <laughs> from 2%. If, if you're a supporter and you weren't listed, um, you how, are recognized by them. I promise. How do we get the mountain bike community and hiking and, uh, the other people who are using these public lands, uh, to, you know, tax themselves the way we do uh, as sportsmen? Dude, that's the million-dollar question, I think, right now, um, is we we foot the majority of the bill, um, and what that comes with is that we have a lot of sway when it comes to management practices. When it's, when it's something that's, you know, especially when it's, when it's a question where it's scientifically sound, and they could do it either, you know, path A or path B. And path A really benefits the hunting and fishing community. And path B maybe doesn't help us out as much or, or maybe is just, is just not an improvement. We have a lot of say so when it comes to getting path A being their, their chosen path. Um, and that's something so we we stand to lose a little bit of ground if all of these other interests start putting all of their money into this the same way that we do and all you know all of this funding goes through the roof but then there's all these other stakeholders at the table and they might not have our interests in mind when they're at the table um and I'm not I'm not saying that um because I don't I'm not saying that as like a threat or to make you feel skittish or dangerous about encouraging others to contribute as well. It's just something that I think we need to have the discussion about um, because not all of the non-consumptive user groups have our interests in mind the same way that we do. Um, So I think, I think there's definitely room for more funding and I think there's definitely room for more seats at the table, but I think we have to tread cautiously into that as well because we could lose a lot of footing or we yeah. potentially. Yeah. That's a good um, way to look at it. Or, or it could be of great immense benefit. Um, and we all get along and stuff like the sage grouse initiative just turns into a breeze because we have everybody fighting for the same thing, which is really, in my opinion, how it, how it should be is that everybody who's got a stake in these wild public lands and waters and wildlife should 
you know, in, in my opinion, we should all be working towards the same goals. Um, and, and hunting just is, is a part of that process. Um, unfortunately that's not how everybody sees it. So it, that's definitely the million dollar question for how do we get others to contribute the same way that we're contributing? How do you get the guys who are, you know, making money off of bird prints who are, you know, nature photographers, how do you get them to pay in the same way that, that a Montana hunting guide pays in? Um, or how do you get these businesses to contribute? How do you put an 11% tax on backpacks, tents, trekking poles, and, uh, and boots? Um, it's, yeah. it's definitely, I mean, I think, I think that's one of the, the future, one of the things we're going to be seeing in the near future is how that unfolds. Um, keeping going with my, with my outline here in conservation today, um, I think it's really important that we support the folks at Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, Arizona Game and Fish Department, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, whatever state you live in, whatever your department is. Um, these folks, man, I've, I've worked with tons of them on different projects, and they are the lifeblood of conservation on the ground. They might not always make the decision that you agree with 100%. They're human beings. They will make bad decisions from time to time, but we, they are the ones who we, we are paying their salaries with our license fees and with these taxes that we pay into. And they, they are our representation in the field. So we have to support them in the work that they're doing. And if we find something that's going on in the field, instead of just bitching and moaning about it and saying like, you know, Oh, I, I hate the DNR and everything they do is, is the most messed up thing. And if, if I were Supreme dictator, I'd do it this way and everything would be perfect. Well, instead of doing that on social media, show up to a commission meeting and find out why they're making the decisions that they're making and offer your input as, as a hunter and a user of the lands and the wildlife, what your perspective is on it. And, and go in there and change their minds and be be a positive part of the process instead of just sitting back and complaining about these people who are way underpaid um, and and working their fingers to the bone on protecting the things that you and I love just because every once in a while they make a bad call or a bad decision. Yeah, um, it's, it, it's easy and, to get to get down on those guys, but if you if you've met any of them. On a ground level, I mean, it's it's hard to uh, not see the dedication and hard work they're putting in for the greater good. Yeah, I'm I'm just amazed every you know every time I meet somebody new who works for Arizona Game and Fish or U.S. Forest Service or uh, you know Fish and Wildlife, whatever agency it is, just like what what their story is and how passionate they are about this thing that they're protecting. We we did a sign implementation on responsible OHV use up on the Kaibab strip up in like mega monster mule deer heaven, man, the land of the giants up there. And we had a, a BLM ranger with us who had picked out all the places where we were going to install our signs. And he was kind of like our, our roadmap and our guide up there. And all we talked about was giant mule deer <laughs> and like this, this dude's passion for giant mule deer and went back to his office and he was 
he was investigating some stuff and he had to go up into this cave that was like kind of right on the, right on the rim of the grand Canyon. And he pulled out this like 175 inch desert bighorn sheep skull from in there. And it's sitting in his office. Like these, these people are so pumped on wildlife and habitat and doing the right thing. Um, we, we owe them a debt of gratitude and all of our respect. Uh, even, even when they do something that's, that we don't agree with, the, the best thing we can do is to go to the next commission meeting and be a part of the process and, and go in there with, with a, a well put together argument instead of just, you know, going in there complaining and moaning about, Oh, there used to be all these deer here. Now there's no deer here. I'm not calling you out, Bob. I'm just, you know, as, as an example, <laughs> call call me out. Like now it. there's none. Yeah. Come on, Bob. <clears throat> No, and I think and, I think uh, you, another thing in finger pointing. Another thing that people need to realize on that same in that same area is like the it's not their fault that they're not getting listened to. The biologist will go and say we need to control cougars. It's it's the ballot measure. It's the voters. You know how it got on the ballot, or it's the commission Rock that's not it. not listening yeah. to that science. It's not the guy out there working. It's not that biologist, you know, most of the time that's, right. that's making some horrible decision that all the redneck hunters are just, and then they, they just blame it all on the, you know, the ODFW or whatever. Right. I mean, it's, it's a little more complicated right, right. than yeah. that. Those, I think those guys are, understand. those guys are on our side and we need to, yeah. we need to support them. Um, and that, that helps when it comes to stuff like, getting a ballot initiative overturned. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if we get, if we get everybody who's on the side of science aligned with that, not being sound science, that's the only way we're not going to, we're not going to emotionally get that thing overturned. It's going to have to be through science and, and then also through economics. You have to, you have to bypass emotion with science and with dollars. And that's, that's those are the only two things that can trump emotion, but it's, it's always best when you're in an argument about this stuff, especially with someone who's a non-hunter to, to find a way to speak to their heart before you speak to their mind and, and find a way to connect with that person and get them to see it from, from your point of view or, or a perspective that they wouldn't normally look at before you drop all the science and the economics on them. Uh, Cause that's, that's your first, that's your first best chance is is to talk to people's heart. And we'll get to that when I talk about Posowitz here in a minute. Um, so moving on from supporting um, NGOs, businesses, and your local and federal agencies, education um, and spreading the good that comes from the hunting community. So that's, that's education of the next generation of sportsmen and women, but that's also education of the non-hunting community on what we do as hunters and anglers, um, you know, both both through our boots on the ground work, our advocacy work, and our, our funding for all of this stuff, um, educate them on what it means to you to be a hunter and and what it's what it's like to not just be a visitor to the mountain when you know not just you know taking a hike bagging some peak or something and all you see is the trail, but to going out for 10 days and being a part of that mountain and, and looking, staring into that mountain and having that mountain stare back into you. 
um, that's that's what's going to get people on our side is how how invested we are and what this stuff means to us on a personal level and that it's not all about just some big rack of antlers or, or bragging rights but it's it's about the experience and it's about how these places touch us and affect us and change us um, and then on, on the you know the educating next generation you can't do better I don't think than than groups like Compton's um, from an NGO perspective, you know, that, that youth shoot that they had out there that, that we got to witness was absolutely incredible. And it, so that's phenom- from phenomenal. a organization. Yeah. Just, I mean, I was, I was totally blown away. They were that's, even, that's from a hunting organization. They were even out teaching the kids what poison oak and po- poison ivy and, uh, how to, um, pick up a blood track and, trail and i mean what a what a great thing they're doing for our youth uh compton traditional yeah absolutely um and that's that it's educating on that bigger picture you know that i was just talking about that it's not just a big set of antlers or something that's you know putting meat in the freezer and and preserving that memory on the wall is is a part of it but it's making that memory that's the big deal and you know learning learning about your environment all the nature that you see all the the tree species the plant species all the animals that you get extremely close to that you don't have a tag for or aren't even a game species when when a hummingbird comes up and flies up to your quiver and starts putting its needle nose into your knocks thinking that the backs of your arrows are flowers and one lands on on the shaft that you've got knocked, you know, in your tree stand, that's what makes those memories. That's what it means to, to be a part of that landscape, in my opinion. And I think and I think that's what Compton's is planting the seed for, for the future to do. So talking talking about that public opinion piece, um, I think a really good guy to turn to is Jim Positowitz. If you went to a uh a hunter education class. You probably got a little book uh, when you left that class called Beyond Fair Chase, uh, which is The Ethic and Tradition of Hunting by Jim Posowitz. So I just want to read a couple of quotes out of here that I think we can we can use to our benefit and something to keep in mind um, when, you, when you're out there and you have a, a decision that you need to make that may be a hard decision, but, but the right decision. So he says, to, to keep our opportunity to hunt, we must always remember that wildlife belongs to all the people. The future of hunting depends on how the majority of people view hunters. These people form their opinions when they see how we hunt and how we care for and about wildlife. And I think, I think that's really important in how, on a personal level, we can communicate or how, how we need to communicate with the non-consumptive user groups that, that we share these landscapes with. Uh, and Pazowitz defines an ethical hunter as a person who knows and respects the animals hunted, follows the law, and behaves in a way that will satisfy what society expects of him or her as a hunter. Um, so that, that just kind of reiterates that, you know, what, how we need to behave when we're out there keeping a clean campsite. If you're, you know, if you're camped in a, 
in an improved campsite or if you're in a dispersed campsite that's right off the road, uh, keep a neat camp and, and set a good example for, for the folks that see us out there, you know, doing what it is that we do. Um, and then on the traditional bow hunting side of things, I think everybody that listens to this podcast can probably get on board with this is that the, the ethics of hunting deteriorate as machinery and modern technology are substituted for hunter stamina, skill, knowledge, and patience. Um, and that, I think that solidifies what the traditional bow hunter is after when they go out in the field. Yeah, can you um, and I think could you reread that? Oh yeah, hang on. Let me go let me go back to it. When <laughs> when you guys talk about having traditional only seasons, which is something that I can only dream of, um, that's that's what comes to mind is is that quote. And when we talk about stuff like trail cameras and OHV use, we talk about automatic range finding sites that, you know, it's it's a GPS and it, you know, it, it's like a, a hologram and it range finds and puts your dot where it needs to be. It's, it's this, in my opinion, it's this double-edged sword because bow hunting is hard. And I think that's why we do it, but it's, it can be so hard for some folks from our latest generation that they give up before they ever get started. Um, and that's why, that's why I don't begrudge dudes that hunt with compounds or that started hunting with compounds because that's, that's me. There's no way I would have had a successful elk hunt in 2016 had I had a stick bow in my hand. But the following season after picking up a stick bow and, and learning how, how to move differently and how to be patient and how to be slower, I had, you know, I, I changed my whole setup for hunting whitetail in Wisconsin and I bought a climber stand and I went and set up that stand in places I would never go to because I never had a long enough shooting lane to make use out of, you know, that tree or that spot or whatever. And I had deer bed in front of me, which I've never had before. I had does walk in and bed down 10 yards from my tree. I had two small fork bucks come out of the river from behind me prancing and dancing fighting with each other all the way across the river and they were locked horns the cute little fellers locked horns <laughs> and one of them ran the other one into the tree that i was sitting in. and i've never i've never had an experience like that with another weapon and i think you know picking up a traditional bow you have to change your mindset on scent on noise on on so many things you have to up your patience by about a thousand in order to get any kind of opportunity like that but that's something that coming into hunting especially without a mentor uh, or coming into bow hunting later in life not coming into hunting but coming into bow hunting really later in life i never would have been able to do without that transition from the compound or and, and my you know i wouldn't have been as stoked about it yeah. had I not already been successful with the compound. So that, that quote, again, is the ethics of hunting deteriorate as machinery and modern technology are substituted for hunter stamina, skill, knowledge, and patience. Yeah, very, very like well that. said. Yeah. And, that's, that, and that's in Jim Posowitz's book, uh, Beyond Fair Chase. Um, and so I think, I think that's a strong argument for having – 
traditional only seasons. And, and when, you know, when we talk about doing that or you go to advocate for doing that, what that's doing is increasing hunter opportunity because our success rate is going to be lower than with the compound bow. So you can sell more tags and you can give guys that normally wouldn't have the opportunity to draw a tag because of preference points or otherwise an opportunity to hunt a unit that it would, it would take them a lifetime to get into. And they would have to give up hunting every other unit in the state for a lifetime just to have that one opportunity, you know, to hunt that, that species in, in that spot with that quality animal and that quality of habitat. Um, so I think, I think there's definitely room for traditional seasons out there and something that we should, you know, just, just like we got both seasons put into place, you know, starting in the, in the thirties and forties, I think were the first bow hunting seasons, if I'm right. Is that correct? Yeah. Oregon. Yeah. Oregon had the first one west of the Mississippi. I think it, we're trying to extend it, but it was, uh, this year at Canyon Creek traditional hunt and it's, it was 36, I think. So it was in yeah. the 30s. I know that. So, yeah, that's kind of when that stuff started. Um, so, for sure. I mean, we obviously agree. So, that's kind of part of our goal with this is to try. Because, you know, it's a different, we're a different generation of traditional hunters than the, than the, you know, the, a lot of these guys we interview, you know, that are legends or whatever. These guys started. They never, yeah. they never started with anything else. That was all they had. There wasn't and so, a compound bow. And so, they yeah. And they, yeah. and they saw the compound come and they, I mean, they could, they knew what would happen eventually, I guess, you know, and that's why there was, there's a lot of that kind of like anger elitist. And, and for us, we're, like you said, we're that generation, you know, all three of us talking tonight. I mean, we all started with a compound because uh, that's what you had. I mean, we got, that, that's what you had. Yeah. And so right. we moved. And, first, and we the moved, first bow I shot was a compound. Yeah, bow. we moved never, to the I traditional. up that bear. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd never drawn a recurve back until I was 32 years old, 33 years old, something like that. Yeah. Um, I think so it's, it's just. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything otherwise. Yeah. I think it's natural for humans to want to, you know, make things easier and, um, and technology and, and tinkering and, and, you know, coming up with ways to, uh, to do this or to do that. Um, but I think for guys like ourselves, it's just getting back to basics and stripping it down is, is really, uh, and, and learning a skill set. And I think that that somewhere lose, gets lost in, in, uh, translation there. But, uh, really, I think that that kind of at the end of the day is what it's all about. It really heightens the experience anyway. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I've never, I've never had a white, in all my years of whitetail hunting with a rifle and then later hunting with a compound bow, I never had an experience like that because I've, I've never been able to be that quiet or that dedicated. To, to doing it, you know, I've always, I've always had those crutches, um, that, you know, a, allowed me to put meat in the freezer most certainly. And I mean, don't think I wasn't having a good time out there in the field and in the quiet, but it's, it's a different experience for me now with 
a traditional bow than it was before with a rifle or with a compound. Um, not, I mean, not, not that the other two are really any, any worse by any means and not to say that I'll never pick up a rifle again as long as I live, but it's most certainly a different, more enhanced experience. For sure. Absolutely. So that's it, man. Those are my thoughts on conservation. Well, you knocked it out of the park, buddy. That's, uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I know our listeners sure did. did for sure. And it makes us all feel like a bunch of damn deadbeats. We need to get the hell, quit talking and get, put our money where our mouth is for sure. So we, uh, I, I, I concur on that. I'm sitting here listening and I'm like, man. DJ is the man. I mean, he's he's putting in the time and he's going and uh, testifying and talking and making these uh, uh, contacts and relations. Um, you know, I really appreciate um, all you're doing and uh, for the listeners, anyone that's involved in any of these organizations uh, from the ground level up. Uh, I appreciate everybody who's uh, putting in this uh, time because it, it, it's going to be on the backs of, of guys like DJ and the rest of us. If we're going to have hunting and fishing for the, you know, the generations to come. Yeah. So, and, and for our listeners, if you're not a member of BHA, definitely backcountryhunters.com. They have a super easy website. It's like, what is it? DJ 25 bucks a year or something. I need to actually check I mine. It's, I, it's, I'm still getting all the emails, so I'm assuming, I, but I don't remember. I think it's 25 a year, 35 for for a family membership. Um, and there's there's also ways as you can be a, a contributing business member, um, which is a good way to get your your dollars in for your two percent of conservation affiliation. And they also, um, they also do some yeah, super awesome work. They also do some super awesome life memberships with some companies. I don't, I don't know what they have going on right now, but I know there's times where they do, you know, if you get a lifetime membership, which it usually runs a thousand dollars, you know, they have companies that donate, you know, like a thousand dollars worth of gear. So you'll get a Kimber. I think Kimber was doing something for a while and yeah, seek outside yeah, so on the tent. So check it on the website. Yeah. Lifetime memberships, Kimber, seek outside. And Orvis, I know are all three partners with us on those lifetime memberships. Um, so if you're if you're a rifle hunter, if you're a generalist hunter or a camper, or if you're a an angler, um, there's there's definitely a way to get some some gear benefit out of that lifetime membership. Um, I happen to be a lifetime member, and I took advantage of that seek outside TP and uh, and backpack package, and that's what I'm taking into Colorado. I got to seam seal that thing actually it's a good thing we talk about that that's on my to-do list for tomorrow I gotta <laughs> feel that before i head to colorado awesome man. awesome cool well it sounds like uh if you guys uh want to reach out to dj um you can find him on instagram your uh is it s clemens yeah s underscore clemens but there's really nothing that interesting on there go go check out at Backcountry Hunters or at Backcountry Hunters AZ, uh, if you want to see a, an, an actual worthwhile Instagram feed, go, <laughs> go follow those guys. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. And uh, like Bob said, you know, everyone should be uh, 
members to backcountry hunters and anglers. If you're uh, utilizing the land, uh, put your money where your mouth is and where your boots are. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play. Check us out on tradquest.com. We've got some cool hats and shirts and stickers on sale right now. Like I said, we're on Instagram. And as always, keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot a big old bull this September. <laughs>